Neil Dahlstrom is an archivist, researcher, and writer. He grew up and lives in the Quad Cities, once known as the farm implement capital of the world. Today, the Quad Cities is a vibrant community of cities on the Illinois and Iowa sides of the Mississippi River with an exciting history of innovation in the farm equipment and automobile industries. He spent more than 20 years as an archivist and historian at Fortune 100 company John Deere and is a member of the Kitchen Cabinet, the Food and Agriculture Advisory Board of the Smithsonian National Museum of American History and Visit Quad Cities. And Neil, your work was the big source of information for my case study that I developed on John Deere. So thank you for being with us today. Happy to be here. That's a huge compliment. <laughs> You've described John Deere as a frontier entrepreneur archetype. What does that mean? And why do you describe him that way? I, I think um, John Deere just has, a, a, he's just got a lot of critical qualities of, of, of an entrepreneur. And um, I kind of came to this after after years and years of research because I learned um, about John Deere as as a simple, humble country blacksmith. I remember when I joined Deere in 2001, and 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 my instant thought was, well, I don't know if someone who in 1836 in in the middle of winter moved from Vermont to to Illinois, which is the edge of the frontier, uh, built a home, built his blacksmith shop. Uh, that doesn't seem very simple to me. It seems incredibly difficult and complex. So that was kind of where I started. But really, if, if, if you just kind of look at, at the business, he builds his first steel plow in 1837, new material, new shape, you know, an innovative new product. How do you build that into a business? Um, in 1860, there's over 2,000 plow companies in the United States. And I always challenge people to name another, another one. And, and, and they struggle with that. So in between, why do you know John Deere's name, you know, is, is the big, big story. And, and when you think about John Deere as an entrepreneur, it, it boils down to things like uh, raw material, supply chain, labor, uh, product development, product innovation, relationships with customers, all those things that we think about with entrepreneurs today. This is what John Deere um uh, accomplished um, over the course of his career. And he did that from scratch on the edge of the frontier, starting in the 1830s and 1840s. Yeah, steel would have been a very new material at that time when he took that broken saw blade and famously put it over that mold board to try out to see if that would work better in the heavier soils. Yeah, it's run, one of the great questions, which is why the heck is there steel in Grand Detour, Illinois um, in 1837? Yeah. Um, usually it's depicted as a, a circular saw blade. Um, and the reality is it was probably what was called an up and down saw or a pit saw. Oh. Um, and it, it was broken. So, you know, big, long saw, maybe 10 or 12 feet long. And, um, it, it's this great kind of combination. He was a blacksmith. He, he would have spent his entire career repairing farm implements, um, building farm implements. So it was this kind of marriage of experience and inspiration where um, he, he took that steel saw blade, and there probably weren't many of those around, and, and, and crafted it into something new. Yeah, so he made this journey that at the time was pretty long, well, it's still long, but much more difficult when you don't have a car, an airplane from Vermont to the frontier of Illinois, Grand Detour, and then eventually to Moline. How, Neil, do you think it was different in those days, you know, just existing very well being an entrepreneur on the frontier in the 1800s compared to being an entrepreneur today and you know what's the same and what may be different yeah I, I think first of all just just think of just think of the distance uh, being away from people so so John Deere left in in over the winter of 1836 and 37 uh, his wife was pregnant they had four four young children and, and saying okay well, well I'm gonna leave and um, if, if I think this is a place where we can live and make a fresh start, I'll send for you. And that was over a year later. So, so just, just that, communication's difficult. Um, just being away from people you know, people you love. And, and, and it's also very much an act of desperation, I think, at that period in time to, to be able to do that. Um, and just think of the courage that that takes from, from John and his wife, Demarius. Uh, in order to make a commitment to do that, they 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 believed in in the frontier that much. Um, 
but I, I think for John Deere as as an entrepreneur, it, it, it was always about what's next for him. And, and I think that's what drives entrepreneurs, which is, well, I think I've got, I've got something else. I've got a different solution. Um, I've got a way that I can, I can talk to potential customers and customers and improve their lives um, and, and, and just bring something different to the table that hasn't been brought there before. It takes a lot of, of self-belief, a lot of confidence um, and an ability to fail over and over and over again. And that's, I think, an overlooked part of the Deer story was there's a lot of failure along the way. We like to talk about successes in, in business, but um, those successes come after a lot of failure. Yeah, and he wasn't coming from a place of great prosperity. Um, <laughs> very competitive uh, business to be a blacksmith in his native New England, um, moving to a new place. And he, he came under the cover, I guess you could say, of some debt as well, didn't he, as he moved? Yeah, he did. He uh, he lost two blacksmith shops to fire in, in Vermont. Um, there's there's a, a story that essentially the, the local sheriff was coming to arrest John Deere for defaulting on a debt. He, he probably would have found himself in, himself in debtor's prison. Uh, the records are pretty sketchy when, when, when it comes to what's actually going on. But it does appear um, in court, oh, four or five years after he gets to Grand Tour, Illinois, he appears to settle the account and pay the account. So it's one of those things, the records, we just have photo stats or copies of the records. They're smeared. You can't really figure out what's going on. But you can imagine John Deere, someone coming to to make him pay his debt, and, and, and he kind of leaves town to make a fresh start. I don't know that it was that dramatic. Debtor's prison was not uncommon. There was an economic recession going on in, in Vermont. They called it a, a panic at that period in time. So there's a lot of things going on there for deer, but uh, he had to make he had to make it work. And and his goal was not to build a plow. His 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 goal was to move to Illinois and be a blacksmith. Yeah, I have some fun with uh, yeah, probably an exaggeration of the story myself when I tell it to some of our visitors that come from overseas and say, you know, what do Americans do when they get into too much debt? They run. <laughs> but that he did eventually pay it off <laughs> and maintain his integrity that way. <laughs> what what were John Deere's best attributes as an entrepreneur as you've developed books and other material and went through the archives and looked at his correspondence, Neil? I'd say persistence, uh, you know, first and foremost. I think I know at Deere today we talk a lot about you know kind of the North Star and it it seems like John Deere just kind of had this North Star of, of who he was. He could be very single-minded. There's there's anecdotes of him, you know, being with a group of people and then just disappearing and and they'd find out later that he had he had gone to the shop because he had an idea and he had something to work out. So he he just kind of when something came to mind he had to work on it. And, and, and he was just kind of always thinking. Uh, he was he was uh, much more well-read than I thought he was, and that's just based on the inventory of his library when he died. Um, so he, he seems to be well-read at least, at least later in his life. Uh, he was socially active, he was politically active. He was, according to a, a local newspaper editor, a raging abolitionist prior to the Civil War. Um, you know, so a strong moral compass, largely driven by his his religion. Um, so just seemed to be a pretty stand up guy. He, he kept his word, uh, but he was very much a doer. And, you know, if someone came and said, hey, we'd like you to donate to this cause, he'd say, well, what can I do instead? Uh, and, and so that was kind of the personality. And I think that's what drove him through through most of his life. And as I look Behind you in your office, Neil, I see lots of books. And so I take books as one indication of great curiosity. Um, and Deere didn't have the benefit of a whole bunch of formal education, did he? And so were those books kind of an indication of self-education? Yeah, I think so. Um, scientific journals uh, were, were part of his library. But yeah, he... Um... He served a four-year apprenticeship as a blacksmith, so he's someone who made things with his with his hands. His parents were uh, a seamstress and a, and a tailor. He lost his father when he was very young, um, so didn't know him very well. 
but they were they were a family who did things with their hands and um it, it seemed that later on he uh, he just kind of absorbed knowledge everywhere and uh i i wish we knew more about about his reading and his life and, and and it's a strange thing because there's not a lot of documentation from john deere's life during his lifetime hmm. and, and so a lot of what we learn it comes from contemporaries it comes from people who knew him after after he died but you kind of see these consist consistent themes of, of things like he he told someone on a train ride that it was a great great source of pride to know that he never wronged any man and put on the market a poorly made article so you kind of see these quotes and they're kind of constant uh, around john deere but at the end of the day people invested in him it wasn't just his product uh it was him mm -hmm. and so the plows is one of the oldest tools known to mankind yet John Deere devoted the better part of his life really to improving it. And you mentioned his insistence on quality and that came through in some of the advertisements that I've seen that you've um, documented as, as part of your research for what you've done. You know, where did that constant drive to improve that most ancient of tools come from? And, and why do you think that's important for us to understand even today? It, it comes down to talking to your customers, really, I, I think. And, and we see a number of examples of this from from Deere. And fortunately for someone like me, there were a number of lawsuits in Deere's lifetime where depositions are taken and and people would say, well, this was my interaction with John Deere and this is why I'm, I'm buying John Deere's plow. But you, you take this ancient, very rudimentary, simple tool like a plow, uh, which, which even in Deere's lifetime, um, you know, there's still wooden moldboard plows being used. Uh, cast iron is, is, is probably the most common uh, form of the moldboard plow in the United States at this period in time. But when it comes to agriculture, and you, you see this uh, around the world today, every farm is different. Um, it doesn't matter where you are in the country and why deer's plow was innovative in Illinois was because of the soil type. It was a very thick rich soil deep root system um when when you initially had to to break the land very different than the eastern united states or other parts of the united states so it's very well suited to to solve the immediate problem that was right in front of john deere um, and his customers in the 1830s and 40s but then as you expand as 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 you grow uh, you need different types of plows for for different parts of the country and that's where that product innovation continues to evolve I, I always found it interesting that John Deere did not receive his first patent until 1864. So he's 27 years into the plow business and it has a lot to do with, with patent law. Um, but what I, what I found interesting is he didn't patent a plow. He patented a process because quality was, was important to him. Um, and, and, and so he patented a molding process essentially. So they were all the same so that they could, they could have some quality control around their product. Yeah. And one, one of his early lawsuits, if I'm remembering reading your book correctly, was actually about more what we might call copyright or trademark issues. <laughs> People were copying his product innovations for sure. But what seemed to put him over the edge, at least in one example, was when somebody essentially copied <laughs> how he advertised and spoke and represented his products. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. The, and, and, and the John Deere brand is known around the world today. And, and that Leaping Deer trademark grew out of essentially a lawsuit where um, Deer up to that point in Moline was calling his plows the Moline plow. Mm -hmm. And a, a rival company was formed and they called their plows the Moline Plow in the middle of the lawsuit. They changed their name to the Moline Plow Company just to further confuse everyone. Um, Deere won the initial injunction, and, but eventually lost the case in the Illinois Supreme Court. So it was very much a, a landmark decision. And essentially what the court said was no company can claim the name for a city exclusively. <laughs> and, 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 and this was a time where just taking Moline, there was the Moline Organ Company, the Moline Furniture Company, the Moline Plow Company, um, the Moline Water Power Company. That's just kind of what you did. And um, 
things started to change after that and and deer and the um uh, a friend of his got together a couple of years later and and designed this this deer leaping over a log to differentiate deer products from their competitors nothing runs like a deer <laughs> that's right so the case study that i um, featured last in the last episode of the podcast was from the late 1850s and again my source material came from you neil but it was an experiment really as i think of it at least that deer participated in where he'd met an entrepreneur joseph fox who had developed what he called a steam tractor what we might think of as a tractor but a steam powered machine powered machine that pulled a multi-bottom plow and deer i think had originally seen this demonstration at the illinois state fair and over the next year worked alongside um Fox to develop an improved version of that. They entered a competition, won the competition, but then Deere, after having had that experience and worked with it, decided that it wasn't worth working on any further. <laughs> so um, kind of my conclusion, at least that I drew from that, is that Deere and many others could see that the idea of a machine that could pull farm equipment, what we today would call a tractor, was a good one. But steam power is the engine that provided the power to do that didn't seem feasible and actually never would become feasible in the case of a, a, a tractor. Of course, it was feasible for pulling locomotives, for powering paddle boats and all of that sort of thing. Anyway, um, it, it was decades before the, the tractor did become feasible, but I just was fascinated with Deere's capacity to look at a, something that seemed like a good idea, had demonstrated some level of technical feasibility, but to say, no, this isn't worth me continuing to work on after having experimented. What, what did you learn from that case? And you know, what do you think we can draw from his decision-making ability with that one particular case study? Well, well for one, John Deere seemed to get really excited about new tech. <laughs> <laughs> yes, imagine that. <laughs> um, uh, and, and and so he liked to get his hands dirty. He 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 liked to get in there, and 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 he said, you know, I can envision a day where 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 one of these um, traction engines is pulling a ten or twelve bottom uh, John Deere plow, you know, across the prairie. Um, so so he was very much envisioning going from, you know, a, a single or or a two team horse pulling a single bottom plow, basically plowing a single furrow at a time to, to, to plowing 10 or 12 furrows at a time. So just think about the, the increase in productivity there. Um, but the, the technology was, was far ahead of its time and, and it was incredibly expensive. So I, I think what John Deere probably learned was the, the, the investment um, was, was just too great. And, and it was probably too early. Steam engines and steam traction engines would have their their day uh, in the 1880s and 1890s, but only for big farms, mostly out west. They were incredibly unstable and, and dangerous. Um, had a tendency to to catch on fire uh, or explode, which or is explode, something you don't yeah. want. Yeah, in the middle of a of, of a wheat harvest, um, especially in dry conditions. But, um, you know, these, these things are evolutionary. I, I think about uh, the automobile industry and, and much of the automobile industry in the late 19th and early 20th century uh, started with, with, with battery power. It wasn't the internal combustion engine. They kind of settled on the internal combustion engine. And uh, the tractor industry, I think, has a, a similar path where it started with steam um, and then ended up with the internal combustion engine for a variety of reasons. Yeah, and in your um, wonderful book, Tractor Wars, you trace out kind of that history of, of things. And so, yeah, the steam engine never proved feasible, but, you know, not long after Deere's experimentation in the 1850s, in Germany at least, there were some entrepreneurs working on what became internal combustion engines. In the 1880s, at uh, an exposition, a young Henry Ford saw one of the exhibits from one of those German entrepreneurs and started his own experiments in his garage in D Detroit. At the same time, there were many others experimenting. But we zoom forward to those decades. And at the same time the automobile was being developed, there was sort of this frantic activity around developing tractors as well. Could you 
kind of tell us that story at, at a high level and what you learned in developing your book, Tractor Wars. Yeah, it's it's. I just find it such a fascinating time, and it really runs parallel to the the advent of the automobile industry. Um, and so you've got, like any industry, you kind of got your your um, your companies that are are driving very early, and they're experimenting with different different size machines and horsepowers, and, and really the the problem they were trying to solve is just to to put more power on the farm and to make the the farm more productive. That story hasn't changed for thousands of years. How do you do more with less? Uh, there's a lot of, of kind of demographic and economic drivers behind that. People are leaving the farm, moving to the city, especially after World War One. Um, so how do you do more with less? But the the farm tractor, it's a very fledgling industry. In in even the 1910s, for the most part, there's a there's less than a dozen companies in 1912 who are even attempting to build a farm tractor a decade later, there's over 150. Um, so there's, there's a, a huge boom. And really what happens is the industry recognizes in 1913 that the path forward is not big, huge, what they called prairie tractors um, for kind of these big commercial farms and farms out West, but it was for the average size farm. There's 6 million farms in the United States uh, the average size farm that you're actually farming the land is maybe 40 or 50 acres. So a small tractor, which today we would consider smaller than probably your smallest lawn and garden tractor uh, in terms of horsepower, that that was the market. And, and that's what really evolved the market. And these companies were all trying to figure it out. And, and John Deere was one of them. Uh, but they are also trying to figure out if anyone would actually buy it and adopt it and if it was here to stay. And, and even in 1917 and 18, a lot of a lot of ag equipment manufacturers weren't quite sure if the tractor was here to stay. And yeah, I think it was 1912. Um, the Deer Board of Directors passed a resolution saying, let's work on this and try to introduce a tractor and had some experiments that really didn't go well. So can you talk about what sort of represents Deere's firm entry into the tractor market? Yeah, first and foremost, they were they were trying to catch up. Um, International Harvester was the market leader. Um, they, they were 10 times the size of John Deere uh, in, in 1912, and, but they had what they called a full line, meaning simply they sold everything that you needed on the farm. And other manufacturers were trying to catch up. There were a lot of acquisitions and consolidations. Um, so Deere went through this kind of organizational change where they they consolidated their sales branches, their associated factories. They made a series of acquisitions, about 10 of them. Um, and, and, and in 1912, went into the harvesting equipment business with a grain binder to take Harvester on for the first time. They'd never competed uh, with product lines before, but now all of a sudden they were, and that was supposed to be the capstone, kind of the end of of this re rebuilding of the John Deere organization. Um, but they passed this resolution in 1912, and, and essentially they said, we're going to figure out a way to divorce the horse from the plow. <laughs> and um, and so that was their approach. They didn't quite know what that meant. They did it in a very John Deere way, which is a lot of research, a lot of benchmarking. So we've got these great studies from from engineers um, just going into the field and testing and figuring out pros and cons. And so they they outlined a number of different ways they could go about it. And, and really stuck to that over the next six or seven years while developing a lot of different types of machines in-house uh, and eventually leading to the acquisition of the Waterloo Gasoline Engine Company in 1918. Yeah, and there was a lot of entrepreneurial manufacturing activity going on in Waterloo. What was it that ultimately led to that acquisition and why does that rep represent to some degree a watershed moment in the company's history? Yeah, very much a watershed moment. I don't think they knew it at the time. Um, and, and in fact, there wasn't a profit in the tractor business for nine years. So there, there were there were discussions along the way about whether that business should be sold, uh, which, which was a, a stunner to me. I had no idea that those conversations were being had um, in the early 1920s. But but really, I, I think it, it came about. And again, this is this is World War One. 
So, you know, it's a really interesting context. Um, so all of a sudden there's huge labor shortages. So the idea of, of having equipment that can replace people, it's, it's critical to, to feed the world um, while it's at, at war. And so um, it's prioritized in a different way than it was pre-war. But Deere tried everything. You know, single cylinder tractors, two cylinder tractors, four cylinder tractors. Um, it was really a surprise to me that they brought everyone to town. If 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 you knew something about carburetors, uh, you were on the experimental farms at Deer. If you could build an engine, they went through. You know, just people constantly. Hey, can you work on this? Can you fix this? Can you fix this? They were bringing people in. Um, so it must have been a really exciting and frustrating time of we've got to make this investment. Deer didn't have a lot of money. The other thing that was happening behind the scenes is our CEO was visiting banks uh, to, 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 to acquire the capital in order to build a farm tractor, and they kept telling him no. <laughs> Thought it was a, a speculative business. There wasn't necessarily a future in it. Um, so it, it, it must have been frustrating and difficult. And then you have the dynamics of a company where you've got a board of directors who are kind of split on the question. You've got Willard Veeley, who's John Deere's grandson, who gets so frustrated at the progress Deere's making that he just builds his own tractor um, <laughs> and, and starts to market it. Uh, you've got others who say, well, we've got to wait until the timing's right and it's got to be the best machine on the market regardless of price. Um, so there's just a lot of different dynamics going on. So you think about entrepreneurs and all the people in their ears saying, we've got to do this. This is the market. This is the way forward. And, and how do you, how do you kind of work through all of that? Right. And, and figure out the path forward. That's really true to who you are as an organization and as an entrepreneur. And I think that's really what, what comes out in the deer story with the tractor is they establish criteria. They work through it very methodically. And when Waterloo, came up for sale, they were able to pull the trigger very, very quickly because they knew what they were getting. Mm -hmm. And that gave them their product that they could take out to the market. Yeah. And, and I'll also say that uh, they sacrificed their own tractor. In, in November of 1917, Deere approved production of their internally designed tractor, the all-wheel drive. And um, water that was November. Production started. Waterloo acquisition was made in March. The first all-wheel drive was completed in April and it was dead on arrival. So <laughs> after all of that work, they basically scrapped it because they found something that they thought would fit the market better. Yeah, so that unique ability to say yes to the right things, but then maybe even more difficult sometimes than saying no to some other things and kind of doing those things alongside almost. Yeah, and I think about it just in in my own daily work of well, I've invested a lot of time in 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 effort and resources into this, and now this just came along and it's perfect. Am I real? Do I really have the courage to scrap my years of work <laughs> just because? But the reality is, the only reason I know this is perfect is because of the years of work, mm -hmm. <laughs> and 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 you you've you've got to be able to do that. <laughs> Well, that first deadly sin, pride, <laughs> can right. get in the way of good decision making. Yeah, pride so, and ego don't work in your favor sometimes. Yeah. Well, it took a long time. You know, today it's easy to think about Deere as the number one market share leader in tractors and, and much else, but that took a long time. Um, but Deere today, you know, one of the most recognizable brands in the world, certainly in agriculture, really even beyond. You know, what do you think of John Deere's imprint remains on the company today, and and what do you think has changed? Yeah, it's um, Deere's such a fascinating company because we think about our founder a lot, and, and we we talk about our founder a lot, and these things kind of ebb and flow, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I I think a lot about first of all, as a hundred eighty six year old company, how how does that happen? you know, how do, how do you survive? And, and I get asked questions like, well, who was the, who was the, the, the top CEO? We've only had 10 CEOs in 186 years, but who was, who was number one? 
and it's it's kind of a cop out in some ways but but the reality is we we've seemed to have had the right ceo for the right time period mm-hmm. and and deer shown itself a company that is able to transform itself um think about the company's almost 80 years old before the first john deere tractor exists mm-hmm. um and then it takes another 50 years almost before John Deere is the worldwide leader in, in ag and industrial equipment sales. So that's 1963, 130 years after the company's founding. And, and, and then you fast forward into the creation of the Precision Farming Group in 1993, which says, you know what, we think the future is um, GPS satellite technology. And, and we're not quite sure what that means yet, but in 1993, that's a pretty big deal. You know, it's 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 pretty early in there to say, yeah, we're going to focus on this, and then to really double down in in recent years with autonomy and electrification and all of these things. But but really, at the end of the day, I think for a company like Deer, it's it's about reinvention and, and transformation of how do we how do we hold on to our roots and kind of our our core values where we go back to John Deere and say, what did he stand for? Okay, well, he was active in his communities. He, he volunteered at his church. He um, had, had to be a volunteer firefighter, which, which most citizens had to do. He was the second mayor of Moline. Um, you know, he led in, in philanthropy. Uh, family was incredibly important to John Deere. Uh, they, they had 10 children, only five of them lived past their teenage years. But a dear family member was CEO until 1982, <laughs> and and so you know we we go back to the the few quotes we have from John Deere. We go back to his abolitionist activities, um, where he he put himself on the line for causes he believed in, and and um, so I I think we see a lot of ourselves in John Deere today, and and it's just also one of the fascinating things about history is times change. And so your interpretation of your history changes too. And so something that maybe we knew about John Deere 15 years ago, but we didn't pay a lot of attention to, now we're really talking about and trying to learn more about because we wanna know what he thought. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 a fascinating thing to say, well, our founder who died in 1886, what do we think his position would have been on this? <laughs> but it is perhaps a good anchor, you know, it. it I, I've, had people who come to me as a professor at Iowa State University and say, well, companies come and go, but Iowa State University will probably be around in 100 years. <laughs> and, you know, I was just at a conference in this last week where there was another professor, in this case from MIT, who had written a book about um, Steve Jobs, Andy Grove, and Bill Gates, so about Microsoft, Apple, and Intel. And... <laughs> really fascinating histories with each of those companies, but Apple had a near-death experience quite famously in the 1990s, obviously is in good shape today. Microsoft fell on hard times, is in really good shape today. Intel in a little bit tougher shape, (laughs) but dear, (laughs) and its persistence over the course of time, yeah, obviously it's had to navigate a huge number of changes in, in its industry successfully. And perhaps that yeah, anchor back to a founding story <laughs> as provided at different points in its history, some, some lessons that could be applied to current times. I, I think it is. And, and I've heard from, from leaders over the years at, at Deere who, who they, they say, yes, quarter over quarter performance is incredibly important, right? For shareholders and everything. But, but we, we, we think, we think long-term you know, we're, we're thinking in terms of, of generations and it's a, it's a different perspective. And you, you see that even with the, the tractor adoption and, and a question I was always asked is why was John Deere so late getting into the tractor business? And I was always confused by the question because 1918 is incredibly early, but when you go through all, all the, the research, uh, Deere's approach was we can get a, we can get a tractor on market. To, to market really fast. However, it's not going to be successful because we need uh, 
dealer channel. We need a repair network. We've got to create all this from scratch. You can't introduce a new technology that nobody knows how to use or operate or service and just, you know, flood the market with it. And so it set, it, it set them back. Um, and, and, and they said, yeah, because we're in this for the long term. So mm -hmm. it's going to set us back. We we're not going to be first, but we know it and we're okay with that because we want the right machine for our customers. And we're making a statement that we're in this, we're going to have the infrastructure done before we roll it out. And that's, that's proven to be really important um, because not everyone's going to be an early adopter. Uh, tractors didn't outnumber horses on American farms till the mid 1950s. So how do you support your existing customer base and their practices while also pushing the new technology and, and kind of the products of the future? You got to do both and you have to do them both in incredibly well. So I grew up on a farm and my grandfather would have farmed at that time span of the transition from the horse to the tractor. And so he used to occasionally tell these fantastic stories of what happens when horse and men <laughs> get together and crazy and sometimes ridiculous and sometimes uh, difficult things happen. But my dad used to laugh at his stories as I did, but then lean over quietly to me and say, you know, I love your grandfather's stories about horses, but I'm glad we have tractors. <laughs> so that same grandfather, that same grandfather, when I was probably about five years old, and for some reason I still remember this, but when you, you know, work alongside your grandfather, it makes a difference. But he pointed at his favorite tractor, in that case of 4020, which for agricultural <laughs> connoisseurs was an important tractor in its day in the 1960s. And he said, Kevin, if you farm with me, I will give you that tractor. And I thought, wow. But then a few years later, they traded off that tractor <laughs> without talking to me. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe, maybe grandpa doesn't want to farm. But, you know, there was a tractor with a cab, you know, and then eventually... For us, anyway, this transformative tractor, the, the 4640 that had a cab that was just this wonderful experience of driving a tractor because it was soundproofed and to some degree dustproofed and all that stuff, you know. But then, yeah, you zoom forward to today. You mentioned the commitment of deer to GPS in the 1990s. And so tractors that more or less drive themselves today. And, and on the cusp of autonomy and a, a whole number of other changes probably in farm equipment, how, how does DEER as an organization, you know, kind of harken back to its roots to navigate what will probably be the next generation of really significant changes to tractors and other technologies in its industries? What, what I found in my research is, is DEER's always had, had this kind of mighty band of futurists in the organization. And, and I think that's so important. And it, I think it's counterintuitive for a lot of people who think about John Deere as this Midwestern ag company. Um, and, and, and I go back to, well, you mentioned the 4020. We, uh, we produced a video in 1970, which was uh, a video of an experimental remote controlled 4020 tractor. Really? Okay. That is new to um, me. Uh, yeah. And it's, you know, again, you look back at history and those are things that I don't recall seeing it before. And, and, and when I saw it, it just kind of, kind of blew me away. It, it had always been there probably in front of me, but it just didn't, didn't grab me before like it does now in an age of autonomy. Um, but I, I go back to uh, 19, I think 14, uh, Warren Taylor, who was the soil director of the soil culture department at John Deere. He was essentially our first agronomist. And, uh, he, he gave a speech about the farm of the future in 1940. So this is four years before the first John Deere tractor, two years into development. And he says by 1940, uh, farm tractors are going to be electric and solar <laughs> Um, there's going to be moisture, electric moisture extraction on harvesting equipment, <laughs> which doesn't come, you know, for generations to come. And, and so you kind of see these things in the fifties, uh, industrial designer, Henry Dreyfus, who'd been working with Deere since the thirties and stylized John Deere tractors, gives a speech to a bunch of students in Waterloo. And, and he talks about 
proximity controls and how you only have to wave your hand in front of a control in order to activate it. You're not even going to have to grab the knob or the switch or toggle or anything. And you're going to have a communication device in your pocket. Um, you know, so they're talking about these things and there just always seems to kind of be that camp, right? Who's leading ahead. And, and sometimes just the market's not there. The technology's not there. Um, I, I point to John Deere's, uh, uh, electric powered equipment now <laughs> and I take people into our storage warehouse in the archives and say you want to see our electric John Deere mower from 1975 <laughs> <laughs> uh, so some of these things take a long time to come back because you have to have infrastructure and a lot of things that kind of go with it uh, there's such a thing as ideas being too far ahead of their time uh, but it doesn't mean they're not going to come back around and very few things new under the sun. You know, yeah, you talked about electric automobiles being some of the originals. Hey, maybe we're finally starting to figure out how to do that. <laughs> it takes a long time. Yeah, and I always laugh because if you look at if you look at advertising in the in the 19th century, really across any product line, they always use the word perfected. We've perfected this product. And everyone's perfected it. You know, there's 300 versions of it. And they've all perfected it. <laughs> um, and I thought, wow, that's a really interesting word to use. And and if you've perfected it, why do you keep reperfecting it and redesigning yes. it? <laughs> Indeed. So you described the Quad Cities, where Deer Headquarters is located today in your home, as a vibrant community of cities on the Illinois and Iowa sides of the Mississippi River with an exciting history of innovation in the farm equipment and auto automobile industries. What about today and tomorrow? You know, agriculture and manufacturing really are important cores of the Midwestern economy, but went through really tough times over the course of my career, at least. You know, at one point, I'm not sure about the Quad Cities, but at one point in the 1980s, Dubuque, Iowa, just up the Mississippi River from where you were located, Neil, was the number one unemployment city in the United States in 1985, if I'm remembering correctly, something like 25% unemployment and kind of a combination of factors, um, globalization of markets for both agriculture goods and manufacturing just hit kind of that core of the Midwest really hard. And, you know, moms and dads, when I was doing my undergraduate work in the 1980s, <laughs> Or telling their sons and daughters, you know, not only don't work in agriculture, don't work in manufacturing, you know, leave and go somewhere else. Zoom forward to today. Um, things, of course, aren't perfect, but certainly in agriculture, I think there's a revival of at least the perception of opportunity. And indeed, I think the opportunity actually being there. And I think we see at least the beginnings of you know, certainly the strengthening of existing manufacturing, but then some entrepreneurial activity in manufacturing as well. How do you, as, as an historian, but somebody that hangs around these futurists at a company like Deere, how do you think about the Midwest and its economy and the things that we do and, and kind of look forward at opportunity for, for entrepreneurs and inventors? Yeah, it's, a, it's such a great question. And I remember, I mean, growing up here in, in the 80s, my dad um, uh, worked for Case IH in, in their combine factory in, in East Moline. Um, and, and I remember him getting laid off. And most of the people I, mo most of my friends uh, who worked um, at Deer, who worked at Case IH, Caterpillar had um, a, a, a plant here. Um, and so still a lot of agricultural related manufacturing and, and it just kind of started to, to die and disappear in the eighties. And I think that's why education was so important to my parents. Mm -hmm. Um, neither of them had a college degree at the time, but they were pushing for us go do something else. Right. How they let me go study history. I'm not quite sure, <laughs> but, um, you know, go, go do something else. And, and, and I think what's really evolved is. Uh, our understanding of the reliance of manufacturing and um, the importance of the skilled trades, you know, going to get a college education, which is incredibly expensive. We know it's not for everybody, but there's a lot of really um, great skilled trades positions available. Um, and now from the Midwest, um, 
you know, we build equipment that literally helps feed the world, that paves our roads, that builds our infrastructure. That's coming out of the Midwest. And it's it's also kind of curious. I'm on the board of Visit Quad Cities and, and we're about we're about tourism. The the world wants to know about Midwest agriculture. They they want to come tour the factories, they want to tour farms, they want to see what it's actually like. Um, how, how does how does such a small population feed billions of people every year? And, and a population that's going to grow by 2 billion more by 2050. Like, how do you actually make that happen? Mm -hmm. um, we've got, I think, four companies doing uh, Mississippi Riverboat cruises now, uh, where you're coming <laughs> to Midwest cities and, and, and you're just touring. Uh, it's this kind of, we've got this Midwest modest, but also we have a low cost of living, um, a young age demographic, uh, a lot to do along the river so it's a really exciting time especially in the quad city um area here we're we're within a four-hour drive of st louis des moines chicago milwaukee madison um you can kind of get a lot of really uh, uh exciting places i can go watch my cubs games uh a little more in a two-hour drive so that's great um, so, so I think it's just the, the start of a lot of really exciting things in the quad cities. Well, maybe just as a, a last bit of discussion here. So you have documents from Deere's history and you've mentioned not as much as you would like from John Deere himself, but at least some things that have helped you construct kind of a nice history for people like me that are interested, um, in learning a little bit more, um, whether it be from John Deere, son Charles Deere, that was the second kind of leader of the company. Um, so anyway, yeah, I have to thank you again for giving me the material that it took to develop these case studies and, and leverage that into to some things that other people find interesting. Um, how do you think about the importance of the archives that you, you work with? And what do you think today's entrepreneurs should think about related to preservation of correspondence documents, diaries. Of course, we live in a very electronic world, but how are those things important for future generations? I, I, I love the question um, for, for a variety of reasons, but for, for, for one, it's just at, at, at our core, we want to know where things came from, right? We want to know who we are. Um, we want to know how things evolved. And at some point you need some documentation to validate that or verify it. Um, also, I think it's important to understand that we don't, we don't know all the, all the questions yet. And we've touched on that a little bit where the, the questions change and there's materials that I've, I've looked at for more than 20 years. And when there's a new question and you can come to it with, with a fresh perspective, it, it kind of changes the interpretation and, and may kind of impact your way forward. And I think that's really important to understand the decision-making process. Um, you know, I'll sit down with historical correspondence and do a SWOT analysis and, and just very simply look at it and say, well, this is the way this could have gone. Why did they make this decision? If we had this information, would they have looked at it differently? Start looking at the context. And, and I think, because we have so much more information available to us, authenticity is more important than ever because we're really trying to sort out fact from, from fiction. And if, if you've got an archival program in place or you have these primary resources, whether it's a, a journal from, from John Deere's partner in Moline in the 1840s, which we have in our collection, or it's emails from three years ago. <laughs> I, I think there's a lot to learn from the discussion. I, I, I worry that we only know the decisions now, but we don't know the pain and the labor it took to get to the decision. Yeah, and I certainly know having met a lot of entrepreneurs and perhaps doing some storytelling myself, <laughs> storytelling is good. <laughs> And especially for those things that work out, we can talk about decisions that went well, but either gloss over or perhaps forget some of the hard deliberation that went into making those decisions the, the way that we did. 
or the precipice upon which some of those decisions really balanced and how they very easily could have and perhaps sometimes should have went a different and much worse way than what they did. And so, yeah, I think that's part of the, the value for, for me of having your materials, trying to zoom back and put readers and listeners, you know, a little bit at least into the shoes of an entrepreneur like John Deere and understand how very difficult it was for a long time. And while we can take for granted the existence of a very successful company like Deere today, it wasn't foreordained. And there were lots of decisions by a lot of people that it took to get to where we exist today. Yeah, I, I think back to early in my career where you, you would hear people, you know, there'd be some significant change and, and and someone would say, well, I don't even recognize this company. And I, I just remember thinking, oh yeah, that's that's a shame, that's too bad. And, and now, now when I hear someone say that, I say, well, good, that means that we've survived and we'll be here for a little while longer. Uh, because if, if you want it to be how it was 15 years ago, we're going to be in the unemployment line probably pretty soon. And that's just yes. that's the reality of it, right? And so you want this track record of change and transformation because if you don't have it, that should be a red flag. Indeed. Well, Neil, thank you for being with us today. Um, if others are interested in finding your work, how can they find you? How can they find your books? If you want to refer to those, how can they find you on social media? Uh, find me at neildahlstrom.com, um, on, um, on Facebook at author Neil Dahlstrom, on Twitter, on Instagram, on all, all, all the places. Um, <laughs> Tractor Wars and, and the John Deere story you can find on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and, and, and bookstores everywhere. So um, I love to hear from people and, and, and I appreciate your interest in having this conversation about John Deere, who I've grown very fond of over the years. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Neil, for being with us. Thank you. Thank you.